Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. What is a woman? Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. There is a lot of cultural confusion and disagreement about this question right now. We are living through what has been called the transgender revolution. And that's why I'm so glad to welcome Dr. Katie McCoy to our podcast today to talk about her brand new book, To Be a Woman. Now, Dr. McCoy serves as Director of Women's Ministry at Texas Baptist. She holds a PhD in Systematic Theology from Southwestern Seminary, where she served on faculty for five years. Katie teaches and writes on the intersection of theology and culture and women's issues, and has co-authored a work on the doctrine of humanity as part of the Theology for the People of God series with Broadman Holman Academic. Included among her research is discovering the pattern of justice for women in Old Testament laws. You can also find out more about her online at blondeorthodoxy.com. But Dr. McCoy, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Good to be with you, Jonathan. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm, I'm so excited about this book. I was had the opportunity to read uh, a pre-release copy, and it was such a helpful work. I knew we had to get you on the podcast to talk about these issues. And so maybe let's just start there. Um, why, why this book and why write it now? Kind of tell a little bit about why it was important for you to write this book. You know, I kind of fell into the topic because I had been teaching about this this topic when it was really very much on the fringes. And I was talking about it in relationship to culture and women's issues, specifically um, some feminist studies, now teaching about that from a Christian worldview and looking at the history of different women's movements. And at the time I was talking about this, this was something that it was a few headlines, but it had not become mainstream. Fast forward to last summer, and I was talking with a friend who works at B&H, and uh, we were just talking about a few ideas, and she said, well, we, we have a real need for someone to address this issue from a Christian worldview. There have been a few books out there, and they're all wonderful in their own ways, but um, I really focused on addressing this from uh, for women, by a woman, and specifically how it's affecting female identity and their perception of it. So... Um, I wrote it in a matter of a, a few months, which is hard to, to believe. Uh, I had some research that I thought, oh, I'll be able to just take what I taught in the classroom and sort of make it a manuscript form. Come to find out, as I, as I dug into the research, I realized I had maybe a pinky finger's worth of all the data that was out there. And um, what, I, what I feel and hope that this book will be a contribution for is there are so many facets to this question. There's the cultural, there's the philosophical and ideas that have affected and formed our sense of identity. There's um, the social. And then there's simply the question of, can we actually change who we are? Um, Not like in a sense of turning a, a new leaf to become a different type of person, but can we actually change being male or female, man or woman? And then finally looking at it, the bedrock of how we understand our identity through a theological lens. And so all of these things are are laid out in the book to try to help people who are especially looking at our world saying, what has happened in the last 10 to 15 years? And how do I even get my mind around it? And if that's you, this book is for you. 
Yeah, and that's why I'm so glad. It's a very accessible book, but it also, you cite important research and um, different experts behind everything. So I want to encourage people at the onset um, that this is a book that you want to read through and it'll also give you some further ways to get into the issues. And we're going to talk about a whole host of different things on this podcast today. But I, but I want to start, um, you know, we're going to get to statistics, we're going to get to ideology, we're going to get to the biblical worldview implications and culture and all of that. But um, I think where I want to start is just making it personal. And, and what I, one of the things I loved about it is as Christians, we, we always need to keep uh, persons and ideas in view. And we've also got to be able to make sure we're engaging the right uh people and the right ideas in the right ways at the right time. And I love the way you do that in your book. But maybe start with sharing the story about about Heather, a girl named Heather, and why you started there and, and what's the importance of her story just in thinking about this before we dive into a lot of the issues and terms and, and all the other complicated things around this topic. Yeah, Heather's story really stood out to me because she typifies so many of the stories that we hear related to women, uh, female, and, and gender confusion. So Heather um, had a, a different, a difficult background from her family of origin, and she had a lot of wounds that she carried into adulthood. And uh, she expressed, as a new Christian, she expressed to a group of other Christians that she struggled with same-sex attraction. And, and she said this um, from her own testimony, I thought, quite bravely, very openly, to say she was really struggling with what does the Bible say about, about human sexuality and trying to square that with her own uh, pull, her own uh, leanings and struggles. And this Christian community, just from the sound of it, didn't know how to handle it. They, they didn't know how to respond. Um, she probably needed someone to say, hey, let's Let's get you connected with someone who can help you work through these feelings, not only with what the Bible says, but how to be a faithful disciple with as someone who struggles with this pull of your old man. and Or someone to even just say, you know what, you are not the first Christian to express struggles like this. We want to come alongside of you. And instead, she just kind of got, from what I, from what I gathered, a lot of awkward silence. Well... She found acceptance not from other believers, but from the LGBTQ community. And one of the things that I think puts people at such a vulnerable risk is that they're looking for acceptance, and acceptance means like unqualified um, affirmation, not acceptance of you being a, a image bearer of God, but acceptance in your self-perception, in your feelings, in a way that is unchallenged. And so she found this in her college um, among the LGBTQ community, and she embarked on social, hormonal, and eventually surgical transition. What that means is she was living her life as though she were a man. So she was dressing and uh, having a hairstyle that would have looked very masculine. She underwent different hormone therapies, and then eventually she even got a mastectomy, a double mastectomy, this happened, from where I remember her story, all before she was 25. She got to a place, though, even in this, the Holy Spirit did not give up on pursuing Heather, and she sensed the Holy Spirit tell her, why are you settling for your brokenness when I offer wholeness? And what's so remarkable about that is 
hear this this girl searching for something that would help her feel whole, help her have a sense of inner peace. And she got caught up in what the world says is the answer to that. The Lord did not give up on her, and she detransitioned, realizing that she had soul-level needs that she was trying to fix with hormones and surgeries, and quite literally dividing her body up, thinking that that would fix her heart. And once she got that connection with God right, she found that connection within her soul to be right as well. So now she uh, is living her life in accordance with her biological sex, um, meaning she is living out her gender identity as a woman according to the biology that God gave her. And not only that, but she's talking and using her testimony to tell other people, this is my story. This is how I was trying to fix soul-level wounds with exterior solutions, and here's why it didn't work. And what a remarkable story. Uh, And at the same time, what a tragedy, because Heather had genuine spiritual, uh, emotional, psychological needs that went unaddressed. And there are people who all along the way failed her and ushered her into procedures and treatment that not only did it not help, it made everything worse. And in many cases caused irreversible harm. Yeah, and I'm so glad you shared that story because, again, it is deeply personal and it's affecting real people. Um, and mm-hmm. there, and so as followers of Jesus, we need to be able to do two things well at once. We need to care for real people who are hurting and confused or even deceived. Yep. And we also need to engage truthfully with bad ideas, which are deceiving people um, and leading them down a pathway that doesn't lead to hope or purpose or life. And so um, that's what I love mm-hmm. about your book. I think it does both of those things really, really well. You know, so here we are. It's the month of June, which our culture has deemed as Pride Month. And so there's rainbow flags everywhere. There's pride flags. There's advertisements. There's all the things um, just really celebrating and promoting um, this agenda, the trans agenda, all of these things. But in your research, talk about how prevalent this is in terms of um, kind of the next generation, some of the statistics on that. And also, why it is that you think this is happening now, um, and we're seeing really just this acceleration um, of this transgender ideology and even just all of these things um, among girls and everything else. Talk a little bit about all the factors kind of kind of leading into this. A huge aspect of this, in fact, it would be almost irresponsible to not talk about it, is the social influence of gender identity. So you mentioned how especially Gen Z and then Gen Alpha coming right behind them, uh, more and more are describing themselves as either bisexual or non-binary or some combination of SOGI, sexual orientation and gender identity uh, monikers. And these, these aspects of your identity are considered the most important thing about you. It is the defining aspect of, of who you are, is your sexual orientation and gender identity. So many of the teenagers, and many of them are teenagers who would say they're bisexual or non-binary, um, they are really just a couple of years into puberty. It, it would be unfair to ask them to pick one identity and be identified by that even by social standards, you know, forget even a Christian worldview, but we have 
a society that is expecting these children to declare their identities and to make decisions, sometimes life-altering decisions, based on that. And so much of what we're seeing is the influence of social media, of entertainment, of uh, celebrities that are held up and valorized as brave and unique and special. And you put all of that together, throw into it an education program that is often introducing young people to these concepts at an early age. And then you have a girl who might say, you know, I don't really like wearing dresses. I would rather play sports. I uh, have more of a loud personality. I'm more extroverted. And, and essentially, she feels like she doesn't fit a gendered stereotype. And so what society tells her is sort of a reverse gendered stereotype to say, well, here, here's the box you must fit in. It's not that you can be an individual. It's that this, may, this must mean something about your identity and not just any aspect of your identity, the most defining aspect of your identity. So in so many ways, it's no surprise to find these uh, surveys or polls where it says, you know, more and more young people are uh, identifying uh, in a non-binary gender identity or some type of sexual minority, in part because, first, it's not really cool to be cis. And cis means cisgender, um, and that simply means on the same side as, and it, it, it basically it's what you and I 15 years ago would call normal. Someone whose biology and gender identity and how they express their sense of who, themselves, who they are all align. But that is terribly boring. That is not special. And so in our culture today, one of the ways that people uh, etch out who they are and sort of uh, define themselves in a way that is different from their parents or perhaps their peers, certainly authority, is by creating or adopting a new identity. Now, that's on the social end. The other aspect of it is what we call social contagion. So uh, there's the kind of broad society and how it's affecting young people, but social contagion is something a lot more personal. Social contagion is um, a, a, any kind of trend that influences the ideas, beliefs, or behaviors of other people. And we see this in things like anorexia, where teen girls influence other teen girls to adopt anorexic habits and mindsets. Well, the same thing is happening related to a transgender identity, where teenagers may see the positive attention that a peer receives when they come out as trans, or they are heavily influenced by a relationship with either a peer or a teacher or some authority figure, and they take that on. And it is spreading socially like a contagion, like a virus would, sort of it's caught. Many people in the LGBTQ community, certainly trans activists, really hate talking about this because it goes against the prevailing narrative that Apparently, there are all these transgender Americans walking around who they, it's just been unrealized. And it takes a society opening that up for people to even realize that it's an option. And if that were the case, I remember hearing Abigail Schreier, a wonderful scholar who wrote a book called Irreversible Damage. If that were the case, she made this point, then where are all the 40 and 50-something 
transgender people? How come you don't have uh, lesbians saying that in their hearts they really were actually the opposite gender? Uh, so in other words, you can't get around the fact that this is sudden, it is new, and it is something that people are trying to get their minds around from a professional and even scholarly sense. But what you cannot avoid is that it is socially influenced. Absolutely. And I th- I'm so glad you drew attention to that, that social contagion piece. Um, I was just the other day in you know, a Wall Street Journal had an article on there about how TikTok feeds teens a diet of darkness. Uh, self-harm, sad oh. posting, and disordered eating videos abound on the popular app. So it's just served up right away to 13-year-olds. They do these oh double blinds. God. So it's like the first things that are seen is they go down this spiral of normalization. And then, you know, if they're feeling, I mean, I mean, going through growing up is challenging anyway. It has been in any generation. So you add to that mm-hmm. people going, why do you feel this way about yourself? Why do you feel bad about your, the way your body looks? Or why do you feel bad about your insecurities? And then you go down this rabbit hole of just exactly people feeding you and then you see well on the other end of it hey people are being celebrated maybe that's viewed as courageous maybe that's viewed as really brave and you're special and all of those things that we all want to be and these teens are just getting nudged into that with every um, kind of post and so i'm really glad you're drawing attention to that even you know the the recent mr beast controversy in terms of you know the transitioning that's you know just how many millions of people um, and kids are just watching that just in real time, you know? And so there's just a it's lot. It's all influenced. Right. It, yeah, absolutely. It's all going on. So that's, so that's from a social contagion piece. The other, the other, I guess, stream that I want to highlight, and we are going to get into, you know, very particular things for parents and culture and, 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 you know, how to navigate certain things and even particular, particular situations. But it's really important to understand that these ideas just didn't start last week. Could you share a little bit of why it is from a um, from an idea level history that kind mm-hmm. of what has led to this and kind of paint some broad overviews? I know that could be a whole podcast in and of itself, but just kind of give kind of an overview of why we're here um, and kind of what are some of the big ideas that have kind of changed along the ways that, that got us here. Most of this mass gender confusion has been teed up by cultural ideas that we have inherited and they have been kind of kind of marinating like a big soup this big pot into which we've thrown all these ingredients and made this soup and that's that's essentially what we have in our in the cultural moment that we're in most of it we could sum up in this term called expressive individualism expressive individualism it isn't like how our american culture values individualism, uh, typically. Um, it, first of all, if you are a Westerner, you're an individualist, and, and much of that is even influenced by the Christian worldview of valuing a person as a person, not according to their social station. But expressive individualism goes uh, quite a bit further. It says that your view, your, uh, your perspective, not only is valid, but it is the truth. And anything that would get in the way of you living according to your own perspective is antagonistic towards you. It is inherently oppressive, and it is trying to squeeze you into a hypocritical way of living. So 
for Pride Month, one uh, one tweet that I saw on social media was, I believe it was related to a government agency celebrating Pride Month and saying that they supported people being their true, authentic selves. And that is expressive individualism in a nutshell. It's that no exterior authority has the right to tell you who you are, not just a religious authority or a social authority or a family authority, but even your own biological self. Your own body doesn't have any authority over who you are in terms of giving it meaning or directing your identity. So, so much of what we're seeing in this gender confused age is really philosophy kind of writ large. So those are the ideas and kind of the social contagion element in regards to that. So let's define a few terms. What is gender dysphoria? I know people hear that term. Give a simple understanding of what that is. So gender dysphoria simply means that a person's inner sense of self does not align with their biology. Anytime you hear that word dysphoria, it means something is out of alignment. It's not as it should be. Um, interestingly, though, there's been a push in the psychological community to uh, not call gender dysphoria itself a psychological malady, um, but because they wanted to say there's nothing abnormal about it, but because they also wanted people to have access to medical care, to have surgeries or hormone therapies that would change their bodies to try to make it align with their gender identity, then there was this uh, kind of counter push to, to keep it there. So you see even the ideologies come at work in how we define gender dysphoria and what we even say it is. Historically, it was acknowledged as a psychological uh, abnormality, something that had to be treated in the mind to try to help the mind realign with the body. Well, that's all flipped in the last two decades. Okay, that's super helpful. And so understanding then that term, uh, which is not the same as intersex, which people like to try to confuse yes. when they're trying to intentionally deceive to say that someone born with, you know, um, you know, nondescript genitalia, that is not, um, but that eventually they can find that through puberty and through DNA and everything else. Um those are not the same things. And so that's what is part of the thing behind the gender confusion right now in terms of gender dysphoria. Um, so in light of that, then let's kind of make this, you know, kind of bring this home for say parents. And one of the things that's happening right now is a pediatrician or someone else will come to a parent and say, you know, this really just um, really hard phrase, something like, would you rather have um, a living daughter or a, or a dead son, right? Or a dead son or a living daughter, if they don't trans talk about how, uh, number one, why that's kind of phrased that way, but then also talk, what's a, what's a parent to do when they're presented with this and describe the treatments that are under the euphemism, gender affirming care, which is not really affirming and it's not care, mm -hmm. but kind of help, help a parent understand what's going on and maybe how to begin to think about that when that happens to them, maybe, or even a friend. Yeah, so sadly, parents are often just as manipulated as their children when their children express some type of gender dysphoria. Therapists and doctors will say to them something to the effect of, you need to support your child's gender transition, or you could be 
consigning them to a life of severe mental illness, suicidal tendencies, and even self-harm. Well, what parent wouldn't just stop in a heartbeat and say, well, what do I need to do to, to help my child? And so parents are often um, over and against their reservations, their questions, um, even just the inquisitiveness of trying to understand why a doctor would be recommending such um, extreme procedures for an otherwise healthy, normal child, uh, they're essentially told, you know, you can't even really ask those questions. That, that seems like you're not being supportive. And so parents go along with these things um, out of believing, many times out of believing that their children need to go on puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or go into some type of procedural, um, some, some type of procedural change. Um, the, the reason this is happening so much as well is uh, there are horrific statistics stating that people who do not have support in their stated gender, their sense of who they are, are um, far more vulnerable to commit suicide. Now, anytime you're talking about suicide, every suicide is a tragedy, and it's, it's one that is um, worthy of intervention. But one of the things that gets lost in this is there are also doctors in the psychological community saying that you treat suicidality, you treat uh, suicidal tendencies related to gender dysphoria the same way you would treat suicidal tendencies because of any other cause. That person needs therapy, they need perhaps medication to help stabilize their mood, um, but, but no other psychological condition uh, for which someone might be suffering with suicidal tendencies uh, there's no other plan that says, oh, well, let's just go along with the person's self-perception. Uh, it's been likened to an anorexic saying that she wants liposuction and people agreeing with that because you're so agreeing with the patient's self-perception that you're doing something that's actually very harmful. Uh, some things that parents need to know. First, there's uh, an oft-cited study that uh, claims that people who are transgender suffer uh, at a very high rate of suicidal tendencies. What that study doesn't do is distinguish between people before and after their gender transition. The reason that's so important is there was another study that was based out of Sweden and it found that post-operative transsexuals, so people who did the operations to try to either amputate healthy organs or construct um, prosthetic organs of the opposite gender, that they were 19 times more likely to commit suicide. This was staggering. And if this were any other issue, I really believe that you would see special investigations in Congress. You would see doctors sounding the alarm. You would call have people calling for um, investigative boards to understand how were these procedures done um, with so little oversight. And yet when we're talking about gender and gender transition, for some reason, it's a completely different 
uh, ball game. It's it's a completely different set of rules, and so parents need to be very inquisitive about what even the detransitioner community is saying. You know, go online and just listen to what some of these people who got the transition, got the surgery, got the hormones, how it affected them. And one thing the medical community cannot do is it cannot predict who will be helped or who will be harmed by the procedures that they're recommending. That alone makes this a gamble. It makes it a huge gamble with someone's life, mental health, um, future medical issues that they will endure as a result of foreign hormones and surgeries. So this idea that it's a, a fix-all, that someone with gender dysphoria immediately needs to be ushered into these treatments, therapies, and surgeries, it's at best uh, misguided, at worst, and I believe this is truly what it is, it is an agenda we have different ideological things at work here. And what we know from reading our Bibles, we have different spiritual things at work here to harm people who are in God's image and to lead them even further and further away from the truth that will set them free. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. And, you know, it seems like at a time when the United States is kind of mashing the accelerator down to go faster on these issues, it seems like other, cult other countries are pulling back. Can you say a few words about that? Yes, they are. And this is remarkable. In fact, the United Kingdom, Sweden, um, these were countries that were really on um, kind of the, the cutting edge of gender affirming care, quote unquote. And they were extraordinarily progressive. Uh, they have they have kind of pumped the brakes a little bit. In fact, a lot. The, in the UK, the one clinic that served children for um, gender affirming care, they completely shut it down because they had enough doctors within that community that were whistleblowers saying, we are ushering these children into treatments that they don't need. They're not effective. And we have a very broken system. These people don't, these kids don't even have gender dysphoria. They come with other things. And, and the idea that they are transgender is sort of suggested or pushed upon them, whether by social media or peers, or just simply the power of suggestion and teenagers looking for a way to sort of make sense of their own mental distress. So the United Kingdom shut that down. It was a, a clinic called Tavistock. You can go Google that. And part of why they shut it down too was a young woman named Kyra Bell who sued Tavistock, sued these doctors. And we're seeing some similar lawsuits form here in the United States. There's a young woman named Chloe Cole. She is a detransitioner. She is suing uh, doctors and I believe uh, pharmaceutical companies or um, health insurance agencies. There's another girl who is suing Pfizer. And, and they are holding these agencies and medical professionals accountable for allowing them to do something that was harming them and that these medical professionals knew was not even the real problem. So in the United States, I think that's where things are going to change. When it starts to hit these companies where it really matters, their bottom line, then we're going to see some policies change. But until then, the American mindset is very different from the European mi mindset. Our American mindset sees all change as progress and all progress as good. And so this idea that we need to change and encourage moving forward and disrupting the majority, those are things very much ingrained in our cultural psyche. So it may take a different roundabout way 
to see the United States pattern after other countries like Sweden and the United Kingdom. No, it's really helpful that you drew attention to that because people need to do research on this. They need to watch detransitioner stories and testimonies that are that are not being um, reported on the news. Um, on most news outlets, they're being kind of throttled back on even on YouTube and different places. So it's vital that people start to read for themselves and watch for themselves these stories of regret and how it did not help and these promises that did not come to fruition. What about parents? What do they need to know about what's going on in schools right now? Um, and, and should they pull their kids out of school? Should they like give some input on how to navigate that in terms of how strong the um, really, I mean, in any other way, indoctrination is become on this topic of the trans agenda? Yeah, it's it really is indoctrination. That's that's really the word for it. You know, with the exception of a couple of states, uh, you have to assume that this is being introduced to children at younger and younger ages. It can come in subtle ways, but it does happen. Um, whether it is gender education or gender identity or introducing concepts like preferred pronouns, for instance, or that appear may be reintroduced to their class as uh, having a different name and gender identity. Um, these things are happening in public schools, and I don't have kids of my own. If I did, I would pull them out of a public school until I could be very satisfied um, that what teachers were teaching, the curriculum that they were using. And then the other thing that parents need to know is that teachers unions are wielding quite a bit of influence in this. Um, I think her, I think it was Randy Weingarten who was talking about, she's the head of the largest teachers union. She was talking about the need to uh, support trans kids. Well, that sounds very good, you know, support them, of course, but support them for what? Support them in trying to understand the source of their mental distress? That's not what it is. Instead, they mean supporting them in uh, aiding and abetting their gender confusion, which also spreads, which we know from social contagion, to other students. Remember, gender identity is socially formed. It's something that we don't come out as a blank slate. This is something that it's biologically guided, but we get a, a formative sense of who we are from our relationships, including the relationships that we build with other peers of understanding differences between boys and girls, male and female. And so if it were, if it were my family, I would pull them out of public school. There's a, a lot of great options out there. Uh, we're seeing more and more homeschooling uh, cohorts here in Texas. We've got some legislation related to school choice, I believe that's going to be coming out. And, and here again, uh, the same with corporations, it's when public schools have to recognize that they serve the interests of the community, which is funded by the taxpayers, which are the parents, that then they need to uh, probably wake up and realize who they're really serving and who they're really there um, to to protect. And it is the, the citizenship, the minds, the education of the next generation. It's not these agendas. It's not these um, ideas of forcing onto children um, concepts that are far too mature for them at their, at their ages. And it's certainly not um, introducing them to concepts related to SOGI, sexual orientation and gender identity that uh, go against the value system of the parents. 
No, that, that's super helpful insight. Why do you think that we're seeing so many corporations get on board with the pride agenda and the trans agenda, and even some of the issues that we just recently seen around Target or Bud Light or some of those um, kind of issues, but why are they so involved in this? Yeah, that's a good question. So first, it's all the rage. This is the trendy thing to be um, in, in among celebrities, the, among entertainment and media. The second is something called the Corporate Equality Index. And um, businesses are trying to earn points, quite literally, from the Corporate Equality Index that comes from the Human Rights Campaign. And this essentially is looking at all these businesses and how they treat LGBTQ community, um, the degree to which they employ the LGBTQ community, and then also how they um, use the LGBTQ community in their marketing, in their advertising, in the partnerships that they make. So for instance, Target, having these formal collaborations with different designers who are um, either non-binary or gay or lesbian, this is all to sort of signal that they too are affirming of the community, not only that, but they are taking part in the propagation of their ideas. Um, it, there really is no neutral here, uh, unfortunately. And uh, I know we can't boycott everything, um, but boycotts work. You, you saw that with Target, you saw that with Bud Light. And uh, again, I think when businesses recognize that they have shareholders, they have a mass public, it is far greater than a fraction of 1%. And uh, I, I think more and more just middle of the road, decent Americans, they not they may not even be religious. They're just looking around at all this corporate agenda and going enough, this is enough, I've had enough. And, and now you're seeing them a little bit revolt. And I think we're gonna see more and more of that. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's really important that Christians continue to do that. So talk to pastors for a moment, um, or what can pastors do in churches on this topic? Um, and should they be silent? Sure. Should they jump in? And how should they do that if they do? The first thing pastors, uh, uh, what I hope they would do is continue to help equip your people with a solid theology of humanity. And beginning with, um, you know, in the beginning, God, God created all of the physical world, including humanity, which includes our physical bodies, that this is part of how we reflect the reality and glory of God as his image bearers. And also to recognize that all throughout history, there has been this impulse to sort of separate physical humanity from the immaterial self or spiritual or intellectual humanity. When the church was born 2000 years ago, it was born into a culture that saw the physical world as bad, the spiritual world as good. And into this world came the Christian message of our God coming in physical form, physically dying, physically being resurrected, physically ascending to the presence of the father. And he's going to physically come back and physically raise us with him. So everything about uh, the human body, as God designed it, is something that is good. That message alone is completely contrary to our culture. That's something that flies in the face of the ideas in our culture that say your physical body, you can quite literally just change it however you want because it doesn't matter. Make it fit your feelings. 
And so we have a God who not only made our physical selves, but he redeems our physical selves. Go read Romans 8 again and see how God has redeemed not only our spirits, but even our bodies as well. So I think having just a very clear, strong understanding of a theology of the body is how we lay that foundation. And then from there, helping people talk about and even talk to others about the reality that God made us male and female, that that is significant, that has meaning, both who we are individually and then male and female together in the union of marriage is also reflecting something of the reality of God as well. Essentially to realize that nothing in our lives Nothing in our biology is random. It is all by design. And down to the 23rd chromosome, God has ordained and designed you in love that is good. It is for your good. And you will never understand what it means to be male or female, man or woman, apart from first a reconciled relationship with him through Christ. And that gives you a reconciled understanding and relationship to yourself. That's so important. And so pastors need to teach, to teach the truth. Matthew 19, the words of Jesus, God made them male, God made them female. He appeals to the creational norm and mm-hmm. from the beginning. And we know from 1 Corinthians 13, 6, that love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And so love is not just affirmation. Um, it's it's not just agreement. We have to talk about um, what is what is true. And even when a culture is 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 um trying to confuse us and think about uh to think about things that are contrary to God's good design we we flourish best with that design um say a few words about the pronoun controversy should christians use pronouns mm-hmm. how great, should we think about that yeah that's a great question it's a complicated one in part because uh, first of all there have been two different um ideas related to it and then also Um, I think we know more than we did a few years ago uh, about this movement, about its ideology. So there's two general concepts. Some will say that in order to be loving, hospitable, or even evangelistic, they don't want to close a door with someone and they will use a person's preferred pronouns. And I appreciate the spirit behind that. Um, but I think it's misguided. Uh, I, I advise not to use them. Use a person's name. They're going to give you their name. You go by the name that they give you. Avoid the pronouns if you can. A lot of times in interaction, you can avoid them. Um, but if it comes down to it, to just explain very graciously, but uh, you know, you can say it in kindness. It may not be responded to with kindness, but to, to say, you know, this is a matter of my conscience that uh, God made you in love and he made you male or female. And until you understand who he made you to be, nothing is going to make sense in your own life. And, and part of why I believe that's important to do, Jonathan, is this movement is, is not just wanting an adaptation socially in how one person is relating to another person. This isn't about a preference. This movement is really looking for compelled and controlled speech. That's what it's become. So uh, I I would advise my fellow believers not to use preferred pronouns. Um, You know, some of the the ways people might say that is they don't want to perpetuate a lie. They don't want to uh, take part in deceit. That is certainly valid. Uh, What I would also say, though, too, is think about other people 
who are struggling and for whom that might be a very confusing message. You know, what about, what about the Christian who is influenced by this gender dysphoria in media or gender confusion, and they're trying to work through it and they want to live according to God's design. What might preferred pronouns signal to them? Uh, might that add to their confusion? And so uh, I, again, I, I used to be, I used to really go back and forth because I could see the, the spirit of people wanting to be kind and loving. But the more that I learn, the more convinced I am. And the more in my own heart, I just refuse to use preferred pronouns. Uh, I think uh, more and more, we're going to come to a place where we all have to make that kind of stand, not, not being disrespectful, um, but, but simply saying, you know, if this is a matter of your preference, well, then I am free, or at least I should also be free to speak according to my own convictions of reality, of not choosing to offend my God instead of choosing to offend you. Um, and, and this is going to be an opportunity for us to bear witness to the truth. Absolutely. Ed. We just had you know, Kristen Wagner and Lance Finney Fremont talking about the importance of free speech yes. on our last podcast. So I'd completely agree with the controlled, compelled speech piece. Um, and that's so important. You know, there's so many helpful things in your book to be a woman, but one of the things I want to kind of wrap things up with is this idea of the definition of itself. And I know you kind of cite and talk through the helpful definition from Abigail Favalli and kind of, I'm going to read the definition she has in there that you, you cite in there and you, you talk about, can you kind of unpack how that's a good understanding of mere womanhood is not everything, but why it's something and how it deals with some of the objections. You know, it says a woman is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to gestate new life and talk about why that's an important, clear definition and kind of how that helps head off some of the objections that tend to come against uh, this conversation. Yeah, I think the genius of uh, Folly's definition is she she grounds it in biology and says this is how a human being is structured. Their their body is organized around the possibility of either siring a child or gestating a child, donating genetic material or gestating and growing genetic material. That doesn't make someone less of a woman because they don't have a baby. Like I said, I don't have kids, and yet. The way God made my body, it is organized around the possibility of it. It is structured with that piece of reproduction in mind. And so this helps us get around uh, some of those questions of how do we find a characteristic that is not only common to women, but includes all women of all times in all cultures well, if you're looking for just a characteristic, we can't find any. We have patterns, we have norms, but there will always be someone who doesn't fit that pattern or doesn't fit that norm. And yet that person is still equally a woman. So Favali's definition is so helpful because it's grounded in biology. It recognizes the comprehensiveness of biology, which, by the way, science is still understanding and catching up to how comprehensive that is. It's not just your reproductive system. It's the left ventricle of your heart. It's your skin organ. It's the neurobiology. It's the way the right and left hemispheres of your brain communicate with each other. It's the muscle fiber, slow twitch or fast twitch between male or female. It is 
far-reaching, vast, and irreducibly complex. One of my favorite uh, little tidbits is that female muscles are, are wired to be able to sustain pressure over a long period of time. Male muscles are wired to be able to have a strong burst of energy in a short period of time. So you have men who are likely to be able to pull a car by a rope, but women can sustain contractions for more than 24 hours. That's because down to the fibers of our muscles, they are designed with our reproductive uh, contribution in mind. Now, again, that doesn't mean you have to have a child or sire a child to be considered a man or a woman. It means that your biology is created with that potential in mind. And, you know, whether we're talking about biological life or spiritual life, I think that also mirrors that God's uh, destiny for all of humanity is to create and move forward the family, whether that is the human family, um, speaking about, you know, mother, father, children, or the spiritual family that we are all part of helping move God's mission forward, whether in human or spiritual life. I think that's a fabulous insight on all of that. And, and that's why some of the, the, the surgeries, as people talk about them, that are in some ways more superficial to the organs themselves, try to add that on to make one male or female miss the point that each body, male and female, is organized in a certain direction as a whole and not just these parts that you can add on with skin or do this or that. That's, it misses how deep the differences are equal but different and so that's so vital to understand um, and so important you know and as you're listening to this um, conversation uh, maybe you're walking on the treadmill or working out or driving around in the car you need to get a copy of to be a woman by dr katie mccoy it's a fabulous book we've just scratched the surface also if you want someone to walk alongside you and your students during this time of trying to disciple them during this post-christian culture in which we're in um, and help them form a strong worldview and to love people well and to think clearly, then look us up at impact360.org for our gap year, our summer experiences, our residency, um, the different things we offer there. But um, Katie, it's been, you know, we've just scratched the surface on how helpful your book is. And again, the book is To Be a Woman by Dr. Katie McCoy. But, but Katie, thank you for all the work you've done on this. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on this show um, with us today. Thank you so much, Jonathan. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.